the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the thing on which our faith stands or falls. Christianity is nothing if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Okay? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied. As the scriptures even tell us, it stands or falls on this thing. And so, when it comes to faith, this is the thing that whether or not you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ will change whether or not you will follow him or whether you reject him. This was the case for the early disciples. This was what they went and preached. They went and preached the death, as we looked at last week. The death was essential. But without the following resurrection, the death of Jesus Christ would be like any other death. He would be like any other prophet down through the ages who has died and has not come back. Or any other prophet from any other religion who has died and not come back. Here we have a man who came claiming to speak the words of God. And then he said, I will lay down my life and I will take it back up again. And he laid down his life and then he took it back up again, validating what he had to say. If, if we can believe him on the fact that he can come back from the dead, we can trust him with all the other stuff he said. <laughs> he is a reliable and faithful witness. If he has the power to raise the dead, why wouldn't he have the power to forgive sins, to save people? We've been making our way through the book of John. Now, kids, I've said this every, uh, not every week, but most weeks that we've looked at the book of John. So I wonder if you can remember, why did John write the book? Why, did, why was the gospel of John written? Do you remember? Yes, Sammy's got it. So that we may believe, and by believing, have eternal life. You see, uh, the, 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 the author, John, the guy who's referred to in our passage today as the, as the beloved disciple, he had to go through a similar process than to you and I. He didn't initially automatically think that Jesus was a big deal. He didn't initially put his faith and trust in Jesus. He didn't realize that Jesus was going to die and come back from the dead. He had to go through a process of seeing Jesus, of hearing Jesus' words, and eventually, as an eyewitness, believing and trusting in him. In our passage this morning, we get a little glimpse of the process that he went through as he came to believe. And now he writes these words, he records these words for yours and my benefit, so that we might see and believe as well. And that leads into my first point. Of our two points this morning, the first one is see and believe. See and believe. As I already mentioned, we're returning to the story from last week where we looked at the crucifixion. Jesus was, was executed by being hung on a cross after having been beaten and whipped. He was an innocent man who was executed. But he wasn't a passive one in those circumstances. He willingly and deliberately went to that cross. He gave himself over to them. He put himself in their hands. And as he even said to Pilate, the Roman governor of that day, no, you wouldn't even have the authority that you have now unless it was given to you by heaven. All these things came together in accordance with God's plan. Jesus was arrested on a Thursday night, in the, in the late into the night, 
he was uh, he was subject to a sham trial, and then uh, they got twisted the governor's arm, Pilate's arm, to get him uh, executed. So they crucified him on Friday, and by Friday afternoon, Jesus was dead. But the Jews uh, celebrate; uh, they have they have a, a Sabbath, a resting day, uh, on Saturday, and their Sabbath starts, or their um their their way of counting days in the old way was uh, not at midnight, like we like to think a new day starts at midnight, or perhaps at dawn, we think of a new day. They would actually start counting the new day from sundown the previous night. So on Friday night at sundown, they were worried because they're saying, our Sabbath's starting and we don't want to be messing around with dead bodies on the Sabbath. So they made sure to take Jesus down that Friday afternoon and they put him in a tomb. They didn't have time to do all the burial customs that they normally do, so they did the bare minimum put him in a nearby tomb, they closed it in expectation of coming back and continuing the job on another day. And that's where our story is picking up. The first day of the week on Sunday, Sunday morning, dawn on Sunday morning. So the the Sabbath day, they left the tomb alone, but Mary is heading out to the tomb on Sunday morning. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Now, it it doesn't say so here in John, but uh, Jesus does have, uh, sorry, Mary does have friends with her. And I just need to put a little pause here for a moment to talk about this because of the reliability of the gospel stories. Somebody might read the other gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the four gospels, all records of Jesus' life. And sometimes when they compare them, they go, well, this guy mentions this and this guy doesn't mention that. Like, why does he leave that out? It's just a reminder that when we're telling stories, when we're communicating something that happened, we always make choices about what we put in and what we leave out. It is a dreadful bore to listen to somebody who gives you every single detail when they go to tell you a story. And you're not sure what's important to the story and what is just them telling you everything about what happened. But the same goes for these guys who write these four records of Jesus' life. They have to choose what to put in and what to leave out. And in this case, John decides not to give you the details about who else was with Mary and, and, and that bit, other details that you get in other Gospels. So he's not, he's not um, trying to trick you or anything. He's just focusing on Mary because Mary has a special role to play here in this story. He wants to highlight her, well, he wants to highlight what happens to her in these moments. Jesus would, would reveal himself to Mary. Mary would be the first person to meet the resurrected Jesus. And so John prioritizes her role in the story here. As she arrives in the early hours of the morning to uh, attend to the body of Jesus. Now, Jesus was buried in a tomb, in a, in, in a wealthy man's tomb. And we know that it was wealthy. He was a wealthy man's tomb, not only because of the, we're told, he, you know, there was somebody who had one freshly prepared and they were going to be buried. He was buried in that one. But just the fact that there was a stone over the entrance. It was wealthy people who could afford to have these big stone uh, doors uh, um, uh, circular doors essentially that would be rolled over the entrance and so Jesus is in this uh, wealthy man's tomb with a stone rolled over the door 
uh, effectively acting as a vault door. And so Mary came to the tomb. Remember, she had seen which tomb Jesus was laid in. She knew which tomb she had to go to. And so she approached that tomb. But even in the early morning light, she could see that the tomb was open. So she turns around and she legs it back to the crew of disciples to raise the alarm. And Mary's first assumption is that somebody has come and taken away the body of Jesus. And at this stage, there's probably a few options rolling through their mind. They think, oh, maybe, maybe there were grave robbers who came and, and took the, the, the body. Or, or perhaps a well-meaning associate has moved the body somewhere else to continue the burial preparations. Or perhaps the religious leaders or the Roman occupiers have taken away the body uh, you know, to prevent a, a shrine being built for Jesus or, or some kind of a riotous crowd gathering for mourning and funeral proceedings. Whatever, they don't, whatever the case, they, they just don't know what has happened. So Peter and John, they get up and they sprint to the, to the tomb. They, they run as fast as they can and uh, secured throughout all history, we know who was the faster runner of the two. Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. So he's, John's faster. Remember, John was probably a lot younger. He was one of the youngest disciples. Uh, so no surprise that he beat Peter there. But John gets there and he stoops down to look in. Remember, these, uh, these tombs are carved out of rock. You don't make them any bigger than they need to be in terms of the opening. So they've carved an opening that was um, low enough that you had to kind of stoop down to see what was going on inside. So John gets there and he, he kind of leans over and peers in to see what is the story. And he sees, he sees the strips of linen lying there. But Peter catches up a moment later. Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself. The, these linen cloths are the, the grave clothes that the body would have been wrapped in. And then the face cloth, obviously by the name, would have been draped over the body's face. But Peter, unlike John who kind of hangs there and is looking from the entrance, Peter just goes straight in. He wants to go in and see what's going on. And he sees the cloth laying there by itself, the face cloth. It doesn't look like the work of grave robbers. Why would you kind of fold up the, the face cloth and put it off to the side if you were robbing the grave? As somebody who was moving the body to do more burial stuff would have not taken the burial clothes off the body and left them there. And it would be weird if the authorities came to, to move the body and they unwrapped the body to move it. Why would somebody fold up the face cloth and put it off to the side? Well, it makes perfect sense that if you woke up with a cloth over your face, you would take it off and put it to the side as you got up. It looks like somebody has got up, taken the cloth off their face and folded it up as they put it to the side. Somebody who's casually kind of taking their time not somebody who's in a rush to remove a body or steal something finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside and what did he do he saw 
and believed. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. John saw the cloths lying there, the grave clothes. He saw the folded up face cloth off to the side. He saw and believed. But what did he believe? Well, it tells us here, look, he he didn't understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So he's not putting all the pieces together yet. He doesn't understand the big picture, but he does believe something. He believes that Jesus has risen from the dead. He believed that Jesus was alive. He didn't understand it, but he believed it. He had before him an empty tomb with the grave clothes and the face cloth folded like somebody was tidying up before they left. John had seen. He was an eyewitness. He was there on the day when Jesus died, standing with the other disciples on the hill or off to the side where Jesus was being crucified. He saw Jesus hanging on that cross. He saw the Roman soldiers put a spear into Jesus' side. He saw where they lay the body. And now John comes and he sees that there is an empty tomb. There is an empty tomb. I'm sure he would have had rising hope in his heart, a glimmering desire that perhaps maybe beyond, maybe beyond what could be conceived, beyond the bounds of the natural processes, perhaps Jesus has ridden from the dead. After all, John had also seen with his own eyes when when Lazarus was risen from the dead, after being dead in the grave for, was it three days? Could it be that Jesus could rise himself from the dead? He had said that he could. The reason my father loves me, says Jesus, is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Could it be that after Jesus gave up his spirit, after Jesus laid down his life on the cross, that he had taken it up again? Jesus had risen from the dead. The tomb was empty. There was, the evidence was right there. And some might say, well, look, you know, they, the, they probably came and took the body away. That all, all, all they had to do was to produce the body. If the religious leaders took off with the body, they could just produce the body and they could have put this rumor of a man rising from the dead to rest. But there was no body to be produced. If it was a bit of a conspiracy... Maybe we'll hide the body and we'll tell everybody that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, that doesn't account for all of the eyewitnesses who separately saw Jesus alive. And it doesn't account for the fact that these blokes, after seeing that Jesus was alive, would go and die for him. They went and they suffered unspeakable trials, execution, persecutions, the rejection of of so many people. And they went through all of that not on the basis of an invented lie. Who would go to the grave trying to keep up a lie like I saw a man who rose from the dead? It doesn't make sense. 
But what does make sense is that there was many people who saw Jesus who rose from the dead, not least of all Mary, who we will see a bit in a moment. Jesus laid down his life so that he could take it up again. He triumphed over death. And so here there is a great encouragement for us to see and believe like John saw and believed. No, we will not see, we can't go and see Jesus with our own eyes right now, but with eyes of faith, with through these words that have been delivered to us from eyewitnesses down through the centuries, we can figuratively see so that we might believe and trust in Jesus. See and believe. Trust in the man who can defeat the grave. And in trusting him, you also will be given the power over the grave. Not in and of yourself, but through Jesus Christ. You will win. You will, uh, you will, in Jesus Christ, you too can rise from the dead. If you are in Jesus Christ, then death is defanged. It is it's not an issue. See and believe based on the evidence, based on the word of God, based on the work of the Holy Spirit confirming these words to you. John saw and believed. And then he went home. But Mary kept sticking around. And she is going to be called to proclaim the risen Christ. Jesus is going to call Mary to proclaim the risen Christ. Mary hangs around at the tomb. She obviously does not yet believe. She's racked with guilt and she is weeping and on the lookout for Jesus' body. This Mary, Mary Magdalene, owes her life to Jesus. Jesus had cast seven spirits out of her and saved her from that, that, uh, that tyranny, from that, from that prison. Jesus had saved her from seven demonic spirits. And so Mary had followed Jesus around and she had been part of the kind of a cohort of disciples that traveled around with Jesus and supported the ministry. Jesus, uh, sorry, Mary loved her deliverer, her saviour. Yet Mary did not fully understand that, that Jesus was going to deliver from death. That he must die and rise from the dead. And so while weeping at the tomb is what happens. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white. Seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. It's as though she's checking the tomb once more. Maybe I missed something. Is the body really gone? And she looks and she sees these two men who've miraculously appeared in the tomb. Two angels. Now remember, angel uh, just means messenger. But usually uh, there is a, we're tipped off to the fact that these are divine messengers. These are spiritual messengers who have come. Who just, these two guys miraculously appear in the tomb while Mary is hanging around looking for the body. And they, th this sign testifies to the fact that something special is going on here. Angels don't show up uh, to, um, angels don't show up where bodies have gone missing. It's not a thing that normally happens. They question Mary. Woman, why are you crying? And, and woman here is not in, uh, like, if somebody came up to you and said, woman, what are you doing? Or uh, you, you might feel a little bit offended. That's a little bit of a, aggressive. That's not how it comes across in the Greek. It's not an aggressive, you know, what are you doing? It's a, it's a gentle 
you know, for respectful way of talking. Why are you crying? It might be like saying, ma'am, why are you crying? She answers, they have taken my Lord away. And she said, I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. The, the, the angels are probing Mary. Why are you weeping? Almost like a gentle rebuke. You know, what have you got to weep about? She has not yet come to understanding. And in fact, her mind is so kind of trapped that she cannot even recognize that the one she is looking for is right there in front of her. And then Jesus asks the same question as the angels. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus speaks kindly to Mary. As Mary pleads for the dead body of Jesus while the resurrection life stood before her. But Mary thinks that she's, he's the gardener or the caretaker. And she thinks, oh, maybe uh, something's happened and they had to move him to a different tomb. If you've moved him, please tell me where you've put him so I can go and, and, and um, do the burial ceremonies, that, you know, treat the body for burial. It's a case of mistaken identity by calling him the gardener. But in some sense... Like so much of John, this is pregnant with irony, the fact that she mistakes him for the gardener. And yet, in some sense, Jesus is the gardener. Not in the sense of, uh, you know, looking after the tombs and the garden where the tombs are, but in the sense that, if you remember, a lot of the imagery that we get of God and his people is of God and his people like a garden. And even if we go back to the Garden of Eden, the first Adam, the first man that God made, what did he do? He put him in the garden to, be, to work it and to keep it, to guard it. And here we have the second Adam, the Adam who would uh, outdo, the Adam who would undo the work of the first Adam. This man, Jesus, he comes as if he were the true gardener the one who would set things right, the one who would defend the, his garden instead of letting Satan into it, the one who would drive Satan out, the one who would tend his garden, his people, and look after them and cause them to flourish. We don't want to read too much into that, but just the fact that she mistakes him for the gardener just has a bit of, uh, a bit of curiosity and meaning behind it. Mary doesn't understand. Mary is laser-focused on earthly matters. She's thinking inside her box, this is what I'm doing, this is where I'm going. She's beset by grief, and she doesn't understand the greater things that God has for her. But it's though Jesus speaks to wake her from her trance and cause her to lift her eyes. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary recognizes Jesus. She knows him. She calls to him. And she probably wants to run to him and, and to give him a big hug. It's clear that Mary would happily receive her teacher and saviour back. Although it, it probably 
floated across her mind. Oh, Jesus is back. Perhaps she would long for the, for the glory days, the, the, the good old days, perhaps when they were traveling around the Judean countryside, healing people and preaching the good news. But Jesus immediately says to her, don't hold on to me. Don't cling to me. This is, we're not going back to the way things were. Everything has changed. Jesus has returned from the dead and he is on the way back to the Father. He's not going to stick around like he had before. He is going to stick around for 40 days, but he's going to be very busy during those 40 days. Jesus has chosen to reveal himself to Mary, for her to be his special messenger, his angel, so to speak, his angel to the other disciples. And Mary was going to be the one who had to take this good news to the other disciples, to proclaim to them Jesus is alive, to proclaim to them that Jesus is also about to be ascended to the Father. Some people get in their minds that somehow that Christianity is sexist because of the way that God has created distinct gender roles for us, that we're different, and that difference is sometimes reflected in things like church leadership. But here we show that, that these ladies are not any less valued or any less honoured. Jesus specifically chooses Mary to be the one who gets to see him first and gets to proclaim this news. He clearly undermines that thinking. He honours her this special woman with this special privilege of being the first eyewitness and being the first one to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. And this happened in the midst of a society that undervalued women to the extent that their testimony was not admissible in court cases. But despite how her society might treat Mary, Jesus treats her with dignity and charges her with a special role in proclaiming the risen Christ. She's sent on this mission, and so that's what she does. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So she faithfully obeys. She testifies to the resurrection. She testifies to the resurrection. Not all of us will be like Peter on Pentecost who preached and 3,000 people repented and believed in Jesus. Not all of us are going to be uh, these big name uh, believers who do amazing things. But all of us, all of us who belong to Jesus can proclaim his resurrection. We can proclaim that Jesus is risen from the dead. This point on which our faith turns that death is overcome in Jesus. All of us who have received this message can go and testify to it in the world, tell others to share so that they might see and believe. Whether our stature be small or great, whether we be young or old, whether we be honoured and, and, and have a special privileged place in society or whether we are the opposite. All who have received this message can take this news out into the world. So what? What does this have to do with us? As, it, as we bring this to a close, let's just recap. Jesus is alive, so see and believe. See and believe in the pages of Scripture with these countless eyewitness testimonies. Because it wasn't only John 
uh, and Peter who saw the empty tomb. It wasn't only Mary who saw the risen Christ. Jesus went on to reveal himself time and time again to so many. And in fact, we're told that at one time in Galilee, before he ascended, he appeared to 500 people. Now, some people say that you can have a shared delusion but I think it would be a pretty hard bet, a pretty hard going to get 500 people to have a shared delusion of having seen a dead man walk among them. Jesus is alive and there were eyewitnesses. And at the time when the, Bible, the New Testament was written, there were people alive who had seen him. There were countless eyewitnesses that you could go and you could ask, did it really happen? It really happened. Jesus did rise from the dead, and in doing so, he has defeated death. So we can go out and we can proclaim the risen Christ. Our hope is secured because now we have a hope beyond death. This life is not all that there is. There is stuff that is more important. There is stuff that is beyond. And we have an eternal hope that is secured. We don't just have to do the best with what we've got here and now and then die as if it's all over. No, there is a hope beyond the grave for those who belong to Jesus. So don't live as if this is all there is. Don't live as if you've just got to live it up now and have, your, have everything, the best of everything and just enjoy yourself as much as you can. This life is not all that there is. This is just the beginning. This is the first moments of eternity. But if you want to join Jesus in resurrection... There is a sign that is given to us. If you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus, then be baptized. Repent and be baptized. This is the way into Jesus Christ. Put your faith and trust in him. Turn away from your former sins. Put your faith and trust in him. And it is as though we have been buried with him, that we have been buried with him in the grave so that we might be raised with him. In Romans, it says, don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of our Father, we too may live a new life. This is what is held out for those who are going under the water today. It is as though you are going into death with Christ and joined with him and escaping the wrath of God and coming up out of the water as if you have been brought to new life, being resurrected with Jesus Christ. Just as Christ was raised from the death, dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And this is an encouragement for you who've already received this sign. You can look back on it and you can be encouraged that you have died with Christ. And you will be raised with him. This is good news. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the risen Christ, the one who has triumphed over death. And we thank you that he invites all those who would hear and receive him to have that same eternal life, that same triumph over death. And Lord, we know that the day is coming when the dead will be raised in Christ and that we will face your judgment. But we know, Lord, that for those who are tied to you, united with you, that we can face that judgment in the righteousness of Christ and we can have that eternal life. Lord, we pray for us that, we would, that you would help us to proclaim this good news 
that it wouldn't be just something that sits with us, that is comfortable with us. We pray, Lord, like Mary, we would race to tell others about the risen Christ. We thank you, Lord, for those who are, who are joining you in your death and resurrection today through the sign of baptism. We pray, Lord, that you would um, encourage their hearts, that you would purify them, and that as they go through this outward sign, that it would be the reality of their hearts having been joined to you, that they might rise from death, they might live a new life in Christ. Amen.